Well, what I like about emerging markets is once you break through all the noise and people say we're not investing in EM because of the risk, politics, macro, geopolitics, you still end up with the likes of Mercado Libre being built, with Nubank being built. You know, these are names, obviously, you know, that have been through cycles in these markets and they're battle hardened. You know, it's just harder to build businesses in these countries, hence there's less competition and less capital uh, through cycle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Dave Nangle, Managing Partner at VEF, one of the few publicly listed venture capital firms that exclusively invest in FinTech across emerging markets with a portfolio covering Brazil, Mexico, India, Pakistan, Zambia, and many more interesting countries. Some of the companies they've backed include Creditas, Confio, Tinkoff, Jumo, and Minu. In this episode, we discuss benefits and challenges of a permanent capital structure and why being a publicly listed firm better prepares VEF to invest in emerging markets with a very long-term lens, the opportunity of fintech in emerging markets, and why Dave considers Brazil to be one of the most attractive fintech markets around the world, navigating this bear market, how growth and pre-IPO companies should be adapting to this reality, and why it could help all entrepreneurs to adopt an emerging market mindset, Dave's advice for new incoming emerging market investors, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Dave Nangle from VEF. All right. Well, Dave, excited to welcome you back to an interview with me, although on a different podcast. So welcome to the FinTech Leaders podcast. How's it going today? Hey, Miguel. How goes? All is going well today and great to be speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. Where, where are you calling in from today? Is it the, the old country, Ireland? It is. I'm back. I'm back in, I'm back in home base. I'm back in Dublin, uh, where it's always trying to rain. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, I've been back on the road a bit lately. Um, Pakistan, a few weeks back, actually heading to Brazil in a few weeks' time. So back on the road, back in the world that we invest in, back out there with investors in the States, in the UK, it'll be in Sweden next week. So um, it's great to be in this, I want to say post-COVID world, but just back in the travel world uh, where we should be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we let's compare notes because we might cross paths in Brazil. Uh, but before we start comparing you know, travel schedules, <laughs> let, let's talk about you, about VEF, right? Tell us you know, how you got to this role and, and why, why become an investor in the first place. Yes. <laughs> yeah, look, um, I know we've spoken before, but just for the audience. So, you know, I'm Dave Nangle. I run VEF, CEO of VEF founder. Uh, we founded back in 2015. But, you know, I've been doing emerging markets and financial services since uh, the turn of the century. That sounds ancient, but since about 1999, 2000. Um, always financials, uh, always EM, um, looking at East Europe, Middle East, Brazil, um, I'm Irish, moved to London, then moved to, to Moscow, spent six years on the ground there, Renaissance Capital. This is back when Russia wasn't so bad um, as it is today. 
Um, but great learnings, great experience, and, and you know, got my emerging market wings, so to speak. But you know, what transitioned me to become an investor versus what, what I was an analyst uh, focusing on uh, emerging markets financials um, was the fact it was me, Tinkoff Bank, actually, um, and that entity, and hanging out with Oleg Tinkoff and the founding management team at Tinkoff Bank, watching them build a company from scratch, which is phenomenal, as opposed to covering a publicly listed company, which you know already had everything in place and like you're watching the venture crowd around it, the so-called cool crew and um, putting capital in, making money, high-fiving as they went to the moon and back. Um, and I wanted to be part of that story. So I want to take my emerging market experience, my financials experience um, and move into the investor. I'm not a creator. I'll be, we did build this business. I'm not an entrepreneur by nature, but we built VEF. So there's entrepreneurial aspects to that, but really just using analytical skills, emerging market skills, um, and getting involved in the structural tailwind of the future of finance and fintech, and also those long-term trends of emerging markets catching up with developed markets. So that was the idea, and created VEF in 2015 with a stake in Tinkoff, um, and then raised capital from effectively big institutions like Fidelity, Wellington, um, institutions like that, who wanted to get access to the space. Um, and that's when we kicked off. And here we are six, seven years later, um, sitting on about $750 million of NAV, uh, 16 holdings in the portfolio. We've got four exits, two really successful in Tinkoff and EasyCo in Turkey, uh, a team of 10 based in Europe with a broad portfolio. Um, yeah, we've got ourselves to a good place. Yeah, you, we every time we talk, we always end up talking about Tinkoff. Yeah. You know, it's such an interesting company and so much going on uh, these days with them uh, that that could be a whole episode. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, Oliver Hughes has been my guest twice. So, uh, you know, really like that guy. So let, let's talk about, you know, a little bit about VEF. You, your structure is different than 99% of venture capital funds out there or, or even growth funds because you are publicly listed. You are a permanent capital structure, which actually some funds have been actually moving in that direction. Yep. See Sequoia. Um, so maybe uh, tell us why the decision to, you know, to adopt the structure and, you know, what are the benefits and challenges? Yeah, no, um, fair question, uh, Miguel. Look, we, we adopted a structure because when we were creating this, we effectively morphed into an existing listed investment company in, in Sweden called VNB Global, which was doing you know, investments in new age, new economy companies across emerging and developed markets. So we kind of I joined up with Per Brilliot, the founder there, and we split off a separate listed investment company for me to run called VEF. Um, but effectively, it was the path of least resistance to get this machine up and running and get the mandate alive. But also a cross-reference with my strengths and relationships in the public markets, which is where we get all our capital, and also cross-reference with the benefits of this structure. So for what we do, like we invest in emerging and frontier markets, and to try and have some kind of timeline on your investments, while I know it's what certain pockets of investors want. Um, it's very hard because you may be in a company for 10 years or 15 years, and that may be a good thing, um, you know, true cycle. So having the permanency of capital, the long-term capital, is a very big positive uh, for us as an investor um, in the companies and countries that we invest in. Um, it also makes us a bit more unique um, and gives us a separate pocket and a very big pocket of capital uh, to attract. So 
while all of our peers, partners are going around the, the institutions, the family offices that play into the private side. I won't say we have our scale niche to play into, but there's very few of us talking to Fidelity, Wellington, Schroeders, Templeton, etc. on the public side, giving them access to this space uh, via a vehicle like ours. So it's a certain uniqueness. And that's where a lot of these companies will end up anyway, in the public side when they cross over an IPO. So we're enabling those companies to get access earlier, to get insights into that space earlier, to actually pre-IPO invest. And we've been openly um, converting some of our later stage companies like Creditas, where we've seen Wellington and Fidelity come in uh, to their cap table in later stage rounds. So it's, um, it's worked really well in terms of the timeline of capital, the partners in that capital. Um, you know, where's the cons? I'd say the cons are a little bit around the, the constant stress and strain for transparency. You know, we're investing in private companies who want to be, I won't say closed by nature, but they're competitive. They want to keep their data to themselves. The flip side is we have public institutions as our investors who want to know as much as possible about what they actually own through us. And you just got to try and get that balance right uh, over time. And then the fact is that we're a publicly traded share. So while we've got a quarterly reported NAV as a function of the holdings that we have and marked at valuations either last investment round or marked a model, if that goes stale, we have a publicly listed share which trades generally in line with that NAV or a premium in up cycles. But then in down cycles like this, you know, that share price can fall off a cliff. Uh, which ours has in line with growth and tech stocks here to date. So you get these distortions in the share price versus the NAV. So I kind of see our, I always see our share price as a higher beta uh, version of our NAV um, and it bobs around depending on points in the cycle. It, it could be an interesting way also for, for people to kind of measure market sentiment of the private markets, right? That's not really available um, publicly. So, you know, it, I think it's interesting and, um, I'm, I definitely like looking at, you know, at your numbers and your, your portfolio because I, I do learn uh, things, especially as a new, uh, fairly new investor, only a couple of years. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's certainly uh, illuminating. So let's talk about your, your strategy because it's been emerging markets fintech for a long time. And I believe close to two thirds of that is Latin America. Um, which that, of course, is music to my ears. Uh, I, I love the region. So, uh, you know, why, why LATAM? You know, is it, is it just the opportunity or is there something else? Yeah, no, look, there's, there's micro level factors, there's macro level factors. But, you know, very much Brazil is still top of our shopping list, even seven years later. And, you know, we've gone over it before many times why we love Brazil as a fintech market opportunity now. There's obviously many other ways of investing, but for fintech, Brazil is market number one for us um, and always has been. And it's a lot of down to the regulator and the economics and uh, the partners on the ground and the competition. There's a, there's a lot of factors which feed in that give us everything we want in Brazil. Hence, you know, we've got, I think, five assets today. And we made two new investments year to date. Actually, six, sorry. We made a Gringo and Solfassel year to date. So, more capital going to work um, in Brazil. So that continues in six out of 16 uh, holdings. As you say, over 60% of our NAV there. Um, Latam Heavy also has us in Mexico, and that's a function of Confio. We're also in Minu, but Confio has been a success story for us. So Creditas in Brazil and Confio um, in Mexico are two kind of breakout stories um, in that region, and they kind of end up 
dominating our NAB, and we love concentration. Um, where we've been rolling that map onto is India. We've made three investments um, over the last 18 months in Pakistan. We're about to make our third. So I guess if you go back to our history, we were heavy in EMEA, the emerging market region closest to home, in and out of Tinkoff, in and out of EasyCo in Turkey, kind of number one, number two fintech companies in those markets. We found ourselves in you know, top three private fintech companies in Mexico and Brazil, and we're rolling that playbook into India. But where we spend our time at this stage is mainly Brazil, uh, India, Mexico, and more and more Indonesia is getting a lot of focus um, as we go. So while EM is a big, broad part of the world, if you kind of exclude China, leave it to the Chinese, then there's the frontiers, which are always next gen. You can always put small amounts of capital to work. There's not that many big scale, attractive markets, especially as you start to take places like Russia, Turkey uh, out of the spectrum in the short term. So that means that you're always looking at markets that are a couple steps away from from a crisis, right? Emerging markets, they're, <laughs> they're, they're not easy. And, and, you know, I, I obviously I grew up in emerging markets. I invest in emerging markets. So I, I, I completely understand that. Um, but that's also the opportunity, right? And so now and we were talking a little bit this offline now that the whole world is is actually you know going through a correction, the markets are rocky. This is not new to you, is that the case? Yeah, look, it, it's it's super fair, and that doesn't mean we like it, um, but we're we're just used to it. Um, and I always see that, like you know, moments like these aren't a, a risk of investing in emerging markets. They're more like a cost. It's, it's almost like a forecast. You can forecast risk, and and actually, when we're investing. You know, we take the, the currency, the local currency that we're investing in, whether it's the real or the peso, uh, and forecast the company out over five years. But we also deflate that 10% a year because we know once in every three or five years, we'll get a smack in the face with the Egyptian pound or the Pakistani rupee, etc., where we just get a massive deflation off the back of politics, macro, or something in between. So it's a fact, I think, risk. And what I like about emerging markets is once you break through all the noise and people say we're not investing in EM because of the risk, politics, macro, geopolitics, you still end up with the likes of Mercado Libre being built, with Nubank being built. You know, these are names, obviously, you know, that have been through cycles in these markets and they're battle hardened. You know, crow, you know, it can be anything or, or sub issues going on. So, uh, you know, when I talk to Sergio Acreditas or David Confio. At this point in this cycle, and we're talking about inflation, interest rates, politics, you know, it, it, private markets slowing down. It's rational conversations. We've been here before in some way or another. Here's the playbook. Here's what we do. And here's how we, we dance that dance. Um, as opposed to, and this is no offense to maybe developed market companies and developed market VCs in you know, parts of Europe or U.S., where you get your first crisis in 10 years because you just don't have a crisis. You don't have inflation and interest rates rising in the U.S. at the pace that they're rising right now or private markets slowing down at the pace that they're slowing down right now. Um, and you have to deal, you have to think on your feet for the first time. Um, it's, a, it's a different world. So, yeah, I, I back EM companies in a crisis over developed markets every time. Yeah, and, and so I guess you're saying that for developed markets, the companies with a, almost like an EM mentality are better suited to navigate this crisis and, and I guess, survive? Is, is That's a good way of thinking about it. You get a, 
a couple of Indians or Turks or Brazilians running a company out of, you know, San Fran or L.A., um, and they've had their good upbringing in, in you know, in the streets of Brazil or where have you, um, they're very much able to hustle. Um, penny pinch, cook quick, you know, survive. You know, that's, you know, the Russian playbook when something like this happens when I was there, you know, every, everybody has a playbook. You know, you just stop paying people. You build up cash reserves. You slow down. You cut early. Uh, you survive first. You make sure you're standing at the other side of this before you start thinking about opportunities to, to double down and win. Um, so it's that's that battle-hardened crisis mentality that's embedded in emerging market entities and people. So probably the hardest-hit part of the market, the private market, has been late-stage and growth uh, companies. How are the boardroom conversations uh, and, and, you know, What's top management thinking about these days, particularly for for late stage companies pre IPO? Because the IPO market has almost frozen, you know, yes. and and, yeah, and and same for uh, growth rounds, you know. So how how can you navigate this? Yeah, look, you you can. It's, it's there to be navigated, but depends how you went into it. Um, I think at this stage, where are we now? We're in May. Um, I think all boardrooms have had the message and all founders have had the message. And you know, some founders would have been quick to it. And I point to people like, you know, Sergio Furio at Creditas, um, obviously one of our strongest founders. But, you know, as opposed to going into a boardroom and, you know, the board's saying to him and stress testing, what do you think will happen and what are you going to do about it? Um, he came in and took, you know, the, the bull by the horns and said, like, you know, business is good. We're trending well. But there's a hell of a lot of uncertainties out there in the world, um, and we need to plan for them accordingly. So, you know, that's what you want to hear from a founder. And as a board member, then you're just working on stress test scenarios with them on the front foot, as opposed to some other founders, which it just takes a little bit longer to get the message that there is a new reality. And, you know, we none of us can predict the future, even though we all spend a lot of our time trying to do so. Um, that reality can stay this way for three months, six months, 12 months. It can be long or it can be short. Uh, we could be out the other side of this quickly with inflation under control, rates falling, China stimulates Russia at peace with Ukraine. These things do happen, um, albeit when you've got negative news like we have right now, the world tends to extrapolate negativity into perpetuity, a bit like we did last year with positivity into perpetuity. So, um, you know, to go back to your question, I think that the best companies right now, later stage for sure, um, are preserving cash. They just don't want to be out there raising unless you really, really have to. Focusing on unit economics, aren't stretching themselves into new lines of business. Are probably letting people go out the back door and not making too much noise about it, letting underperformers go. Um, but that's you know that's the companies that are in a good position. There's some you know and you know I was on my re- results call recently and you can say we're good, you can say we're lucky, but you know we all of our big companies creditas confio rupeek uh, just pay top 6 to 8 companies in our portfolio all raised money in the second half of last year and in size is that lucky is it good i don't know but i'll take it um there's some companies out there that didn't they plan to raise in q2 of this year that's unlucky um if you cross reference unlucky with you know having poor unit economics and no path to profitability then you start to get in trouble and then you look around your cap table and who's got deep pockets and who doesn't, and that causes you a scenario. So I think the later stage stuff, we're, we're still finding our feet. I still think, you know, there's, it's a bit like a housing market with not many transactions going through. So you don't really know the price points, albeit the public markets are giving you a healthy indication of 
what is fair, if, if the public markets are fair, and they're probably overshooting on the downside right now. Um, so we'll see that kind of playing out in the second half. And then you've got every journalist in town looking for a horror story. That's their job right now. You know, find me the next WeWork or find me the next, you know, car crash story. And uh, so they're jumping on everything. So that just extrapolates all this noise and news. But I think, you know, late stage is quiet, but a bit like everything, there's going to be money for quality. Um, but it's going to be a function of the, the price point, really. Yeah. And as an investor, of course, uh, your your job is not only to support your existing portfolio, but to find the next Creditas and next Confio. How do you approach this problem or this, you know, this, this task in this environment? Does, does anything change in your, in your calculus or, or is it just find great companies? Doesn't matter what's going on out there. <laughs> there is a little bit of just find great companies. Um, and look, I don't mean to be, uh, what's the word, but I, I really enjoy crises um, in a weird way. Um, they just shake out the, the wood from the trees, whether it's investors or whether it's companies. And it really annoyed me, I guess, the amount of capital out there in the last few years, the amount of capital drifting into places where it probably didn't belong, um, and the amount of average companies getting too much capital at the wrong price. Um, so, you know, having a bit of a shakeout is no bad thing um, for, for us. And also in our portfolio, we, we see who can stand up and who can survive this crisis and who gets more of our capital uh, to go on to the next level. So all of that is no bad thing. Um, also, these are great shopping opportunities. I don't think it's a great shopping opportunity today, but I think that's coming. Um, and longevity tends to work these things through. So um, I'm very happy to be shopping during a crisis with blood in the streets. Um, not that I want our blood or our company's blood on the streets, but it's just a good time to be out there. Um, and it does come back to your point of you know getting great companies in the portfolio. Uh, they will be out there. They'll need more capital. That's for sure. Um, from our point of view, we always have a 30% 3-0 IR, uh, IRR that we're looking for in investments. I think last year, as we missed a few deals on price, we were asking ourselves, is 20 the new 30? Uh, we didn't go there, thankfully. And now we're asking ourselves, is 40 the new 30? Um, because, you know, we're, we're investing a true cycle exit multiples, but, you know, we're at bottom of cycle exit multiples right now, or market multiples. So why wouldn't we invest at bottom of cycle multiples as opposed to true cycle? So, yeah, no, lots of moving parts there. But I think everybody's just in that mode where they sit on their hands, they watch a bit what happens next, see where the markets go, then confidence will start to build and people put capital to work. But um, it's early. It's early in that kind of process. Yeah. And, and you work a lot with the local investors, right? You, I, I think you never invest alone. You, If you go to Brazil, you're going to invest with Gazek Munashis. If you go to Turkey, you're going to invest with the you know equivalents. Now that you're seeing so many new investors come in into these regions, you know, what, what would you advise uh, someone who's an international VC who's coming in for the first or second time to emerging markets? Yeah, look, um, I'd say stand tall. I'd say, you know, take your lessons, take some deep breaths. It can be a rocky ride. Um, and that rockiness, all that money that was rushing into far-flung parts of the world will slow down. Um, you know, you're, the fundamentals of the company may be strong, but they may translate into US dollar at a much worse rate. Um, so your IRRs might look a lot less. Um, and I just, you know, it's stay close to local investors. They know best. They, they've seen this again and again and again. Um, and stand tall and have your checkbook ready because it'll probably be necessary. Um, and don't be freaked out, you know. It's just, it's, it's the way of these markets.
So they've one conversation that we've had in the past is about you know joining a board, right? And and a lot of investors are are fairly new to to board management, uh, joining a board, and, and you know you you've experienced you've you've gone through several I don't know how many but several boards you've you've been a part you've seen how other investors behave. You know what what are some good practices? Uh, for board management that you've seen, and maybe some not so good. I would love to hear some stories. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, I don't think any of us come into this role as trained board members. There's a few, obviously, but you know, a lot of us come in as investors, former founders, analysts, you name it, into the VC private equity space. Uh, we don't have a master's degree in board management. Um, we make an investment into company X or Y, and we find ourselves on the board. Um, there should be training that comes with that. There should be, you know, we all should be sent off to Harvard Business School for a one-month course and what is a good board member and board management. And people like INSEAD do all these courses. Um, Wait, wait. Wharton, not Harvard. (laughs) Oh, of course. Never go to Harvard. Go to Wharton. Um, But, you know, you find yourself on a board and you learn on the job or you get training on the side. But a lot of us come in with an investor-first mindset. You know, our capital, our position, how's this going to affect me, my, my, my portfolio, as opposed to the board member mindset, which is, you know, all stakeholders, employees, management, other shareholders, you know, everybody involved in, in that company, debt, debt providers. So it takes time uh, to evolve, to learn. I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience here. Everyone's going to have their own journey here. Um, but it is very hard to sit in a room where maybe you're a personal you know, investment is not going to do well from a decision, but that decision is the right decision for the benefit of the company and all stakeholders. And you have to make that decision, you know, and you have to, you know, segregate yourself from the investor hat to the board member hat and balance those. Um, and I guess where the, the horror stories kick in is with people who can't separate those two hats. Um, and that gets very difficult and tricky where they think about themselves and not about the company first. Um, and I get that, and I get the forces. And you add to that that it's mainly most companies are an all-male VC uh, suite of board members. <laughs> so you get the alpha content in the room too. So there's a lot, a lot of mixed effects from that. So um, companies that do break out, that do get bigger, that do move towards IPO um, are ones that start to mix their board up. You get the, the, the balance between you know, every aspect of, of ESG um, and different skill sets kicking in. And it gets to be a better place as it moves towards IPO. Um, but in that interim period, in the growth period, it's interesting what you see from all parties. But, you know, I guess, you know, I'm quite lucky to be on boards in, you know, I said Confio and Creditas, two names in Latam. Um, and some of those boards, you know, can be quite an education when you get the guys from, you know, the, the guys at SoftBank Latam, for example, or the Kazakh guys or the QED guys um, who hold themselves in very high regard and add a serious amount of value. Um, in those board meetings. So, you know, big fans of sitting on boards with people like that, um, which are company first. Now, obviously, the investment is part of that, but company first, and you learn a lot. Fascinating. Uh, and, and so just to close it off, Dave, going forward, what, uh, what has you the most excited for, for our industry, right? Where, where do you see this going over the next uh, few years? Yeah, look, um, I'm excited by the shakeout, um, to be honest. And I know that can be quite ruthless and brutal, but I've been there before in, in many industries on a micro and a macro level, and I think shakeouts are healthy. Um, shakeouts on the company side and, and on the on the investment side. Um, and then you get the shakeout and you get that 
than that first opportunity to get more capital to work at good prices in the next up cycle. I'm not saying we're in a horrific down cycle. Uh, these are still great companies, a great industry, and a lot of value to be created over time. But shakeouts are necessary. I'm ex- excited on a micro level to stress test our own mu- muscle in this shakeout, how we position ourselves as a company, how we hold on to our shareholders, hold our hands, you know, tap them for more capital at the right time, how we build our team. We're adding a couple more people to the team right now, which is a bit counter-cyclical, um, but that's what we're doing. We're thinking of the future um, building some muscle around Web3 as well and other areas that we think we'll branch into. Um, so I'm excited around all those things because I think in the last couple of years, you were so busy you know, raising money, spending money, raising money, spending money um, in an efficient, um, you know, IRR-driven way that it's great to build, come back, get the business underbelly right. Not that it was wrong. Um, and get that that very tight for the next level. Well, you know, working with your companies in not one dimensional up and to the right way. You're you know you're seriously stress testing strategy, uh, business capital position, different skill sets, and that's that's an exciting part of this. Once you get away from the prices are falling or value destruction in the short term, and there's a lot to work with. Dave, always love talking to you. It's entertaining, and and I always learn something. So. Thank you so much for stopping by. And the third one has to be in a studio in person. Yeah, no, I look forward to that. Always, always good to talk, Miguel. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dave, managing partner at VEF. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.